Welcome to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. I'm your host, Timmy G, providing your weekly dose of insight and inspiration for mental and emotional well-being. Are you ready for your weekly brain bath? Let's go. Mental health news from around the globe. First news article for today is coming from the Globe and Mail, stressing the importance of exercise for mental health. The fitness industry loves to tout the ancillary benefits of exercise. We know not everyone wants to pump themselves up to gargantuan proportions, devote every waking moment toward achieving a single-digit body fat percentage. But everyone wants to feel good, and there are plenty of studies showing that exercise is a valuable tool in managing depression, anxiety, and in particular, stress. There's an almond-shaped cluster of neurons deep inside our brain that regulates how our body responds to stress. The things we see, hear, and experience filter through this area. If danger is detected, hormones are released to help you survive this perceived threat. This is often called the fight-or-flight response, as in you have two options face this threat head-on, or hightail it in the other direction. What happens, though, when this internal threat detector never shuts off? As brilliant as our brain can be, it has a hard time distinguishing between minor nuisances and major threats. To the brain, there's no difference between running 5K for fun and running 5K because a grizzly bear is chasing you. It's up to you to make this distinction to control the stress response so your body doesn't shift into fight-or-flight mode. Too much of anything can have negative consequences. When the body is in a state of stress, as it is when you're pushing through a tough workout, it releases the hormone adrenaline, norepinephrine, and cortisol. These hormones are meant to help you survive that uh, theoretical grizzly bear encounter. Adrenaline and norepinephrine raise your heart rate and blood pressure, enhancing your reaction time and focus. Cortisol increases the amount of glucose in the bloodstream so that you have instant energy to fuel your fight or flight. Cortisol also shuts down less essential bodily functions, such as the immune response and digestion. If you're in a constant state of stress, including the stress caused by exercise, your body recognizes this as the new normal. Stomach issues, constant flu-like symptoms, and hypertension are just a few of the nasty stress-related side effects. For anyone trying to change their physique or become more healthy, it's imperative to control this stress response. Otherwise, that time in the gym is all for naught. These tips will help. Tip number one, learn how to breathe. You might think you know how to breathe just fine. Thank you very much. I'm here to tell you that you might be wrong. Don't take it personally. I had to learn how to breathe properly myself, and it's been a huge game changer. Most of us are shallow breathers. We take quick, tiny breaths that barely fill our lungs at all. When we practice diaphragmatic breathing, we increase the depth of our inhalations and tap into the part of our nervous system that counters the fight-or-flight stress response. Our heart rate begins to slow, body relaxes, and functions such as digestion are improved. Another thing happens when we learn how to breathe. Like magic, our posture and mobility improve. This is because stress often manifests physically as tension in our muscles. Deep breathing helps to relax this tension, opening up a whole new range of motion. Keep your workouts short but intense. There are two types of stress, eustress and distress. Eustress is the good kind of stress, the mental stress that pushes us to meet a work deadline, or the physical stress that forces our bodies to adapt and build muscle. Distress, on the other hand, is exactly what you think it is. It's the negative stress that that kills. Good stress can become bad stress if you're not mindful and aware. Those grueling 90-minute workouts that look so cool when presented in abbreviated form during movie montages can do more harm than good. Remember, stress sends cortisol levels into the stratosphere. When cortisol levels are too high for too long, 
Muscle is broken down and digestion slows, making it just about impossible to get strong and healthy. A well-planned and efficient workout should last no more than an hour, and even that can be excessive. It's all about the minimally effective dose. If you use your time wisely and focus your intensity on the task at hand, 45 minutes is plenty of time to warm up, work out, and hit the shower. Prioritize recovery. Experts with more brains and experience than myself say there's no such thing as overtraining, just under-recovery. I don't fully agree, but I get where they're coming from. What we do outside the gym matters just as much, if not more, than what we do in it. If you're sleeping eight hours a night, eating a well-balanced diet that's heavy on plants and healthy protein, and making time for mindful solitude, such as meditation, walking in nature without earbuds blasting music, or journaling, there's a very good chance you can handle all the stressors that life throws your way. That from Paul Landini, personal trainer, health educator at the Toronto West End College Street YMCA. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Coming up is an interview with Daughters of the King Gospel Trio. They have some events coming up. Before we get into that, we have two more articles. This Mental health problems don't end with age. Older people need help, too, from The Guardian. Loneliness is sometimes presented as a main reason for older people's mental ill health, but that's not the case. After years languishing in the dark, mental illness is finally getting its moment in the spotlight. Frustrating political football, it may be, but one thing can't be denied. It's making headlines more than ever. Focus largely has been on young people, Crises in child and adolescent mental health care and in student populations have been both persistent and significant. But mental illness doesn't end with reaching adulthood, often, in fact, doesn't end at all. New research from the British Journal of Psychiatry into self-harm in older people puts this into stark perspective. A meta-analysis of 40 studies found that yearly self-harm rates were about 65 per 100,000 people, with risk of repetition and of suicide also higher than average. Self-harm is still seen as a problem among younger demographics, and while that remains true, this data proves that the issue is even more complex and diffuse than we thought. The findings are not wholly surprising. In 2014, the World Health Organization found that suicide rates were highest in people aged over 70 in almost all regions of the world. The Royal College of Psychiatrists also found that 40% of older people in GP clinics experience mental ill health. This rose to 50% in general hospitals and 60% in care homes. And as the Mental Health Foundation points out, the UK population is aging rapidly. Since 1974, the number of older people in the UK has grown by 47%. By 2027, The Office for National Statistics predicts 20.7% of the UK population will be aged 65 or over, compared with 15.9% in 2007. The problem clearly is not going away. Combating loneliness is often seen as the key here. Just this year, 11.5 million euros was awarded to organizations designed to deal with the issue. But it isn't enough. Loneliness is sometimes presented as the primary problem when it comes to tackling mental ill health in older people. And while it indubitably contributes, this explanation doesn't really go far enough. Many of these experience, uh, many of these individuals who are experiencing self-harm, suicidal thoughts, or other signs of mental distress already have diagnoses. There are people who have dealt with mental illness their whole lives. Social isolation may contribute to their problems, yes, but it's not the full picture. In fact, as the Journal of Psychiatry Research found, other factors are more important. Age, history of self-harm, comorbid physical conditions, and pre-existing psychiatric diagnoses were all more significant than social social isolation. Access to services, that perennial bugbear for mental health campaigners, rears its ugly head again here. As the RCP point out, 85% of older people with depression receive no help from the NHS. Older people are also a fifth as likely as younger age groups to have access to talking therapies. Some of this, of course, will be down to cuts to services. But it may also be down to how services are delivered. The NHS, in a primer intended to help general practitioners identify mental health problems in old people, 
points out that professionals risk attributing symptoms simply to old age. Older people are six times more likely than younger age groups to be put on medication by their GPs, but with the research also showing higher prevalence of self-poisoning among older people, clearly there are potential ramifications to issuing prescriptions too. On a very basic level, acknowledging that mental illness is not a problem that suddenly vanishes as you age would be a huge step. The uptick in mental health discourse is great in many ways, but it isn't always good at presenting a multiplicity of experiences. Current face of mental illness is young, white, middle class, diagnosed with a condition such as uh, depression or anxiety. People of color, those with more serious diagnoses, and the elderly are often not given a look at all. If we are really committed to fighting stigma, increasing provision of services, and improving the lives of mentally ill people, we need to do better. Talking about mental illness more is not enough. We also have to think about what we're saying and to who. That from Emily Reynolds in The Guardian. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. If you want to access past episodes of Talk, simply check out the CFRC Podcast Network, where you can find a wonderful array of past topics, anxiety, depression, and many others. Our last article for today is coming from Forbes.com. Understanding the evidence, transforming how employers make the case for mental health. Executive decision-making almost always requires compelling data. When the decision involves investments and spending, solid business case and reliable evidence for return on investment is expected. However, while many executives have learned about the advantages of investing in a top-notch workforce, the data to drive investment in the mental health of employees can be more difficult to identify and understand. Employers must look closely at both direct costs and indirect costs when developing a strategy for understanding mental health as part of a business imperative. Mental health conditions left untreated can lead to an increased likelihood of developing other physical conditions like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, stroke, and Alzheimer's disease, resulting in even greater health care costs. Mental health challenges like depression can complicate and worsen physical health conditions. While the costs of treating depression are significant, the impacts of untreated depression or insufficient treatment are far greater. Employee with depression accrues average annual health care costs that are $6,000 higher than those without depression. Half of that additional cost results from medical conditions and health care costs other than depression. For example, diabetics with depression have average health care costs between $2,000 and $5,000 higher than de- diabetics without depression. There are costs associated with providing mental health care, but business can expect larger overall health costs when their employees do not have access to treatment and support for mental health challenges. When non-health care factors are considered, costs not related to treatment are approximately eight times the cost of treating depression and comorbid disorders. Productivity losses are the most significant drivers of these costs. Depressed employees miss between 6 and 25 more days per year and suffer from impaired performance between 13 and 25, 13 and 29% of their work uh, time. No two organizations are identical, which creates a challenge for corporate leaders to interpret national trends and apply them to their workforce. However, One Mind at Work and Tufts Medical Center have developed a depression cost calculator to allow employers to understand the cost of serious depression in real time. There are many other mental or behavioral conditions in the employed workforce, including mild depression, anxiety, and substance use disorder. But using the large amount of available data related to serious depression has allowed researchers to gain insight into the multitude of cost drivers Uh, for organizations. For a hypothetical employer with 10,000 employees, an average salary of 70 grand and 70 million in total profit, total cost impacts of depression would be 17.2 million. That's in both direct and indirect costs, including productivity and increased health spending. Employers can calculate their costs uh, using these, this formula 
understanding the direct and indirect healthcare costs along with other data like missed work time, impaired work performance, turnover, disability claims, and even mortality can help business leaders make informed decisions about the value of investments in mental health services and support. When making the business case for supporting workplace mental health, it is helpful to consider these tips to successfully engage the executive suite. Number one, lead the conversation with how employee mental health connects to the mission of the organization. Number two, start with the data, but don't abandon the emotional impact to bring it to life. For instance, provide emotional anecdotal evidence based on a best practice case that supports a proven approach. Early successes build momentum. Number three, Start with eliminating stigma through the acknowledgement of mental health in the workplace. It is a low-cost method to improve workplace culture and change employees' attitudes. Understanding the compelling business case for supporting the mental health of employees in and out of the workplace will define corporate leaders in the future. Estimates of the impact of mental health challenges when addressed, unaddressed, and untreated are significant and apply to all workforces in all sectors. When it comes to conditions like depression, direct health costs such as prescriptions are only a fraction of the total cost. Understanding the variety of ways that poor mental health impacts the workforce, business productivity, as well as business costs, is truly a C-level priority. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. Thank you for bearing with me through that news segment. My voice is a little bit tired and throat a little sore today, so I'm working through it. Coming up, an interview with Daughters of the King. In 2017, CFRC Radio celebrates 95 years of creating campus community radio in Kingston, Ontario. Over the last 95 years, CFRC's governance has evolved. Once supervised by Queen's University and later by Queen's Alma Mater Society, since 2014, CFRC has been an independent, self-governing, not-for-profit organization. Its board of directors has representation from Queen's University, the AMS and SGPS, CFRC Radio Club, and the Kingston community. Learn more about CFRC, Canada's longest-running campus and community radio station at cfrc.ca. Telephone Aid Line Kingston is a crisis, distress, befriending, and information listening service based in Kingston. Talk is confidential, non-judgmental, and anonymous. We are a safe place to call when you don't know where to turn. To reach our aid line between 7 p.m. and 3 a.m., call 613-544-1771. For volunteering information, please email talkrecruitment at gmail.com. Let's get personal. Our talk feature interview. Today I'm pleased to welcome Daughters of the King Gospel Trio. We have two of the three today, uh, Debbie and Roxy. Thank you so much for being with me. Oh, thank you for having this interview with us. So I'd love to hear about how you grew up and where and and your early evolution. So we'll begin with Roxy. What can you tell us about your early years? What I can remember? Um, I lived in Kingston for many, many years, and I um, grew up in going to church, and that's basically where I started learning how to sing in front of people from the time I was just a very young, very young girl. The the church I belonged to was the Kingston Gospel Temple, and they they had a television show, which I was asked to be a part of as first as a duo, and then I started singing solos on the show, so... Music was a, it's always been a, a big, large part of my life. And so is your family, parents musical, or did it just kind of start with you? Well, my mother was very musical, but she chose not to sing in front of people. But she had a gorgeous voice. 
Um, now, all of my children, I have three children, they all sang very well, and it's basically the same thing. Um, it's really, a couple of them don't choose to sing publicly, but one of them does. Hmm. That's great. It's nice when you can kind of pass it on to your kids and make that a part of your family culture, your family legacy. Yeah, that's right. And so you grew up early in the ch- in a church environment, singing, and at what point, like when you entered your teen years, did you ever have any rumblings at that time that, you know, I, I would really like to do this in my life in a more formal way or a more uh, professional way. Did that ever come up as a, as a kid? Um, I never really thought about that end of things at all. Um, in fact, when I was uh, 13, I was asked to sing with a semi-professional group called the Masters. And um, they traveled locally, and then we ventured out into the States and whatnot. But I really didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be a kid <laughs> and go to school and have fun with my friends. But my mother um, took time out to explain to me why it would be beneficial with the fact that I was musical to try, at least to try it out. So I kind of went in kicking it and screaming about the whole matter. Um, but as I the years passed and I was traveling, um, and it so happened that I traveled with um, they were older than me, but they were men. And um, there was just one fellow that was my age that I traveled with. And I just started to really enjoy the whole idea of traveling and seeing and coming to different churches with a great message. And so how old would you have been at that time? Well, I started out, I think I was 13, started, and then I got, we, then I traveled a little bit more after I was uh, 14 or 15, and I traveled like that for about 10 years. And so I guess what I'm, I I love honing in on like these pivotal moments in our lives where we, we have that aha moment or, or we find ourselves at a crossroad or we meet a certain person and it just changes the, the, the texture of our lives and we move in a, in a different direction or, or a more expansive direction. And so within that 10 year period of traveling, at about what age did you say to yourself, wow, like I really am enjoying this and I'd like to keep doing it? Were you early teens or was that a little bit later? Well, it's funny you should ask that because I actually remember that moment. I was about 16 and I traveled for a while with, with the guys and um, and was starting to feel relaxed. Um, I remember I came home from a, a gig that we had and it was in the middle of the night and I you know, had the key to walk, to go into my parents' home, and um, I was still living there, of course, and I woke them up in the middle of the night and just started telling them how much I enjoyed what I was doing and um, and talked, and they let me talk and laugh, and um, and then I went to bed, mm. <laughs> and I thought afterwards, I just woke them up and told them <laughs> all of this, but, but I knew that I needed that I was in the right place. It just took, took me a bit, because I'm a little shy by nature. Wow. Well, you know, it's it's kind of a beautiful thing that when you came home that night that you you just felt so overcome with the joy of the moment that you needed to share that. And I think that kind of speaks volumes. Yeah, and I don't think I've ever done that with anything else with my parents at all. I didn't I never wake them up in the night to tell them that. So it was a very, um, a really great experience. And I'm glad you asked that because I it's not that I had forgotten it, but it really was a, it was quite a moment for me. Hmm. And so when you say traveling at that time with, you know, older or older adults who were, were uh, performing, was, were you traveling mostly locally or how far would you have been going at that age? Well, we were booked from a Friday night to a Sunday and we would go anywhere from locally to Windsor then maybe head to the States. I don't even know how we did it. And then we, as I got older, I had to hold down a job as well and do that. That was difficult, but I did do it. (laughs) And so did you, I'm curious about your parents. Did they have reservations at all about you kind of going out on the road at, at at that age? I actually thought they might have, but my mom knew the people that I was traveling with and they had already been singing and established a name for themselves, so they were reputable. Um, so, no, she never, um, my mom was basically the one who 
who spent a lot of time raising me, and she she never questioned it. She was actually very much for the whole um, idea of me going out. She trusted the people that I was with, and they were to be trusted. They were amazing. Mm. And I wonder, too, how that affected your friendships, because I, I assume, I don't know, but I assume that at you know, 13, 14, up to 16, probably not too many of your friends were, were in the same situation traveling with professional musicians. Like, How did that affect your sense of self, your friendships? Well, that really was, um, that was difficult. I felt very much alone. Um, I have struggled with depression, and it might have started... Well, it started before that, but I think that was kind of hard for me. Um, I had, again, I had one uh, uh, young man in the group that was my age, so we, you know, we would have some good talks and conversations, and, you know, we kept each other, you know, from going crazy because you're with older people (laughs) (laughs) at that time, you know, when you're a kid. Um, But, uh yeah, it was it was difficult, and I think there was times that you know I saw my friends going off and doing things with other people, and it it did it did bother me. I guess I just you know with the confliction I might have felt at that time. I just justified that I was doing what I enjoyed doing and was doing what I felt called to do. Hmm. And so as time goes on, I I don't before you tell us we'll, we'll actually. I'd love for you to divulge when you and Debbie actually crossed paths and actually met in person. But as as your life is unfolding, um, did you know of Debbie? Had you heard of her? Um, I'm, I'm going to ask that part, but but don't tell us when you actually met. Or maybe maybe you didn't know her at all until you met in person. I didn't really know her at all till I met in person. That's the that's the neat part of this whole story. Hmm. It was uh, it was incredible, really, um, because I'd heard of her. I um, through another friend who said you need to connect with this person. They really um, they're 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 kind of like you, and they they're they're singing gospel music. And I hadn't been doing much at that like for a while when I was told about Debbie. I basically laid my hat down, so to speak, for a few years and just said, I'm not going to do this for a while. So um, that's how I, how I indirectly knew about her, was through a friend. And in in about how old were you when you decided to lay your hat down, take a break, and then heard about Debbie through a friend? Well, that'd be about... Uh, it's been more than five years since I had you know I was singing gospel music but not to the degree that that we are now mm. and so would you I know I'm testing you with dates here would you have been in your early 20s or like late 20s oh wow wow you know what I'm really going to tell you my age now because I'm, <laughs> I'm a lot older than you think <laughs> let's just say I started out singing in the 70s <laughs> <laughs> so it was and that just wasn't a few years ago so um no I i um, I've got grandchildren, and so um, I guess it was in my early fifties when I stopped singing and stuff. Okay, so you you really had had quite a a long career of of doing solo, but also performing with other professionals. And so you're you're in your fifties. You decide to take a break, and then you hear about Debbie through a friend. Yeah, and I and throughout you know the the last I'd say you know um, ten years, uh, I would get asked to sing with my cousin who's um, who's traveled internationally. So I would do like little tours, um, um, but not not uh, any committed music, gospel music, like I was involved in. So yeah. And so, what do you think made you decide to reach out to Debbie? Well, I think she reached out to me, and that made me reach out to her even more, because mm. I kind of, I'm a bit of a, um, I wouldn't say a hermit, but I am an introvert, so, um, you know, I was on social net, on, on Facebook, and, 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 you know, social media, and, and whatnot, but just kind of, you know, had a, my own little profile, and whatever, but she, she approached me, and 
um, it was the coolest thing ever. We just started talking as if we'd known each other for years, and that that really drew me in. And then I invited her over to my house, and um, um, she came and sat and told me about herself and her kind of her past and whatnot, and connected the dots. And when she left that day, I felt like uh, kind of that feeling I had when I was young again that something really great was happening i just didn't know how to put my finger on it hmm so is it it's, it's it sounds like that sense of excitement that maybe you felt when you were 16 and came home to share with your parents that that, that was being kind of triggered again is that fair to say absolutely <laughs> absolutely and I, and i thought of that i just haven't voiced that since i've been together with these girls singing but yeah absolutely what an amazing thing. And so maybe you can speak to that. What's it like to, what's it like to be an adult and to have, I, I mean, I, I would, based on what you're telling me, I would describe it as almost like these, these moments of wonder in our lives where we're, we're kind of like surprised by, you know, the presence of, of God or, or the presence of another person and, and just the connection that moves through all things. And so to have that, triggered in you when you were, or, or I guess born in you when you were 16 in that very tangible way, and then for it to pop up so unexpectedly when you're in your 50s, I mean, what was that like? Oh, it, um, it just, it's incredible to know that, that God hasn't forgotten about you, and I think that's what sometimes you think is that, you know, he, he might have done that, he might have, he might have put me on the shelf or I put myself on the shelf and and uh, I'd gone through quite a bit of things in my life and um, and actually I'll, I'll, I'll be honest and tell my age I am 62 now <laughs> so this is this is like it blows me away to think that God does not forget about you wow and so when you decided to kind of, as you describe it, lay down your hat was, was there any part of you at that time that, that had kind of felt like given the amount of time you'd put in and the way you'd crafted yourself that you felt like God had forgotten you a little bit? Yeah, I, did, I think I did. I, I did feel that for a while, but I was also content to, to just stay out of the, the whole music scene. Um, had a lot of um, things that I'd gone through that well, I don't know. I guess the depre- I had experienced depression. I also had, believe it or not, I began to have low self-esteem and feeling like I wasn't worthy enough to keep going um, just by choices I'd made in my life that were wrong. You know, I, you know how some people kind of stagnate and feel like, you know, they're kind of down on the bottom. Well, that was me for a while. And it was hard. And when you were challenged by... I know a lot of people when they look at musicians and performing artists and so forth, see people up on stage, there's this common assumption that, oh, that person, there's no way they struggle with self-esteem or or struggle with being up in front of people. And, and oftentimes behind the scenes, that's very much what's going on. And so how did you, how did you reconcile those feelings and, and begin to kind of rebuild your self-esteem or get kind of reconnect with it? Um, finding a good local church was really helpful for me, um, and I moved away, so that took a while to find a, a church. I moved away from Kingston up to the Camelford area, um, but I did find people that poured into my life and reached uh, me and were straight and honest with me, and that helped a lot, and it's just, I think I've been on this personal kind of isolated journey to find who who God was in my life and he became more real to me than ever before than I would be when I was young I knew who he was but um but now I really feel he is he's more than just a name and he's more than just the words in the bible he's I feel he's he's just a part of who I am and um he it's it's just made a whole difference in my in my life hmm yeah, I think I think it's common for people of faith to, and I can certainly relate. Where we, 
at times in our lives we have this intellectual understanding of what God is or who God is, and then we go through a series of things that make that relationship tangible. It's we we feel a significant shift in right. in that presence, and it it becomes more real, and it becomes something that we can. Um, we're, we're willing to maybe take more chances on on that faith because we know we have a knowingness about it now, whereas before it was just maybe a, a nice idea that their that our parents told us about. Right on. That's right. That's hmm. Very true. Well, maybe we can turn the tables a little bit and 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 hear from Debbie, and then uh, yeah. we'll we'll. At the end of our, our chat, we're going to hear about some great events that you guys have coming up and some fundraisers that are connected to those great, great events. So, Sounds wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Roxy. Hi, Tim. Hi, Debbie. Okay. So it's your turn. Take us back in time and, and kind of give us uh, <laughs> the, the flavor of your early evolution. Of my early evolution. Well, um, I grew up in Oshawa, and um, uh, I listened to a lot of uh, country and a lot of gospel. That was what was in our home. Um, I grew up going to church. Um, my parents were Christians. Uh, we went to Christian school, my brother and I, all through elementary school, high school, and even into college. And um, I never actually started singing till about 10 years ago, semi-professional, because uh, I used to be too afraid to get up in front of people and sing. Um, I loved singing. I loved uh, listening to music around the house, but I was too scared to really uh, do that in public. Uh, fear of being um, uh, laughed at or, or people wouldn't like what they heard. So <laughs> mm, Wow. So you've, you, you've spent most of your natural born life not singing in front of people. First, yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. did was there a desire to reach that that plateau to kind of break through that or were you really content with just singing in the shower singing in your car <laughs> uh actually ever since i was a child it's what i wanted to do there's uh basically three things that I wanted to do in my life. I wanted to be married, I wanted children, and I did want to be, you know, I watched all the country music awards and I thought, I want to do that. But uh, fear kept me from um, pursuing that at a younger age. When I got to grade 12, um, I did start singing a, a little bit at school. I did a couple um, things at school where I was asked to sing, um, however, uh, I would get too scared, and I would ask somebody else to sing with me instead of doing it solo as a solo. And I did sing at my wedding uh, to my husband, and I've done funerals, um, like for my grandparents and some of my aunts and uncles and that sort of thing. But other than that, um, not singing in church or singing where there was like a whole ton of people. So until ten years ago, so. Wow. And so I, I would imagine that when you are singing in those very kind of limited public environments, family or friends around, that uh -huh. that people would come up to you and say, wow, like that was very moving or that was very beautiful. How did you reconcile within yourself that you were not willing to own that and move <laughs> in a different direction with it? Um, I, I would get that. Um, people would come up and say, man, why haven't you been, you know, singing more? You know, you have a beautiful voice. And, uh, you know, again, it's just, it's fear. I know once I would actually sing, I'd be up on stage singing. I was comfortable at that moment. Um, but prior, I would be um, basically shaking. I would be sick to my stomach. And every joint, when I get really nervous, every joint in my body stiffens, but I can hardly move. And so prior to doing even stuff for funerals um, and that, that's how I would feel. I'd sing and I'd be okay in that moment. And as soon as I was done, I'd be bawling. <laughs> wow. And it's just like, I hate this feeling. I don't like feeling like this. So it, it did keep me from doing a lot of singing and just doing sporadic singing, so. Sounds like you're and almost, that, go ahead, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, until 10 years ago, um, my husband at the time um, uh, worked for Sun Life Financial, and he was asked to sponsor a country music event um, in the area, and he did, and he said, oh, well, we get free tickets, we'll go out, and there were open mics, and he says, well, you're getting up there, and I said, I'm not getting up there. It was a live band, you're with a, a live band, and you just say, I'm singing this song, and this is the key. I'm singing it in, and they'd start playing, and people would start singing. And I'm like, there's no way I am doing that. He says, yes, you are. I'm putting your name down. You're going to do this tonight. And uh, he did. <laughs> and he says, your name's on there. So you pick two songs that you want to sing. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And so um, I went home, and I chose a couple songs and brought the lyrics, and I think it was like 11.30 at night. <laughs> um, the open mic was still going on, and uh, uh, I remember getting up and, and singing. It basically first time on a stage with actual live musicians um, that are, are, are playing. And I just remember once I started singing, I felt very comfortable. And um, I thought, wow, this is actually pretty, this is pretty cool. So, um, and then from there, I actually got booked to do the main stage of that jamboree the following year and then I started doing various jamborees uh, with country music um, within you know the, the local area from Oshawa, Lindsay, Peterborough, Kingston, Flinton, those types of things. So Wow. So we have your husband to thank for part of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What a, that's a great story. And um, and so if I can ask, I know you're not supposed to ask a woman's age, but how old were you when you were up on stage doing that open mic thing? Uh, I was 36. Okay. <laughs> that was 10 years ago, so. <laughs> it's, I'm just, yeah, I'm astounded by, by... Sometimes the time that it takes for things to materialize, but it's like we're, we're even when we don't think we are, we're continuously being coaxed or moved, moved in a direction. And, uh -huh. and eventually those connections start to happen. And I'm just, I'm always in, in wonder of all of that. So, <laughs> so how did you hear about Roxy? mentioned uh, from a mutual uh, musician friend and um, he mentioned her to me uh, about five years ago and um, that's basically for about five years I was doing country music semi-professionally and um, then I was going through a very difficult time in my life um, a lot of ang high anxiety uh, depression panic attacks and I basically hit rock bottom about five years ago and um, things started to turn around uh, for me I started uh, I went to counseling which I had never uh, gone before and I started dealing with um, some of the things in my life and uh, the depression and that as well and I started realizing music uh, can be beneficial and it can also not be beneficial, depending on what you're going through in your life at, at a certain time. Um, music can either bring you hope and lift you up, or it can actually, in some cases, and it did this for me, um, it, can, it can bring you even further down and take, you know, your mind can go places of the songs that you're singing mm -hmm. and take you in a different direction. And so when I, when I, basically hit rock bottom there five years ago, um, I decided then that the music that I was going to sing, um, if it was doing that to me, obviously it must do it to other people too. And so I decided that uh, I was only going to sing music that was uplifting mm. um, and wasn't going to uh, do anything to bring somebody down. And so in the last five years, that's uh, been the direction that I've, I've taken with my music. So. You bring up a really important point, and when I first started this show about, I don't know, I guess it was going on two years ago, maybe 18 months ago, some of the first couple shows that I did looked at, um, well, the first one, I can remember it very clearly, I don't know if you know the band Linkin Park? I've heard of 
album, yeah. yeah. So their lead singer, he commits suicide, and mm-hmm. and and then with about a month later, uh, the lead singer of Soundgarden commits suicide, mm-hmm. and they knew each other and they were friends and this happened in a very short period of time both had families and kids and and i got so i played some of their tracks uh on the after i did a segment on them Uh and in in it it, i mean i've heard listened to both those bands over the years just through the radio i've never really owned their music uh but but being growing up as a teenager being around other friends who are very much into Soundgarden, they've been around longer than Linkin Park. Um, I was kind of brought back down memory lane when I was going through some of their tracks to pick a few songs to play. And as I listened to the lyrics, I got thinking, and I ended up sharing this on the air, and it goes back to your point, like some of the lyrics and some of the storylines are so heavy and dark. And I got thinking, what what would that do to a person's consciousness and their their mental outlook and emotional health? You know, you're these. I mean, these bands have toured extensively, a lot of shows. I'm thinking you're singing these songs night in, night out. There's often drugs and alcohol mixed into the party scene of of most most uh, musicians, and so I just thought, man, like the toll that that must have took. So I think that you're very wise in approaching music from a very kind of responsible how is this going to affect me the longer I'm associating with the lyrics that I myself am putting down on paper but then my audience and how that's making them feel so that's I think that's really key what you're saying right there it it is it is so true like um, you know I've listened to all different kinds of music throughout my life and um you know, you do listen to some of the words. Sometimes you're just listening to the music, right? You're not hearing the words, but when you listen to the actual words, you're like, man, that's been going on in my head, and I didn't even realize that, right? Yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, for sure. But I know I got off, I got off topic there about how Roxy and I connected, and <laughs> and uh, like I said five years ago, uh, her name was mentioned because uh, the person knew that I was now wanting to go more into uh, gospel music. And he said, oh, you should connect with Roxy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, you know. And then you get busy and do things. And um, just back last summer, you know, she keeps popping up on my Facebook, you know. Um, you have so many mutual friends in common. And I thought, oh, well. Maybe I'll, I'll message her, right? You know, I remember uh, this musician telling me about her before. I'm going to message her, and I did that. We became friends on Facebook and started chatting, and and then uh, she came and met with both Kim and I, um, the um, uh, third daughter in our group. And um, after the first meeting, we did, what, one, one gig together, and Kim and I decided that... Um, uh, we should bring Roxy on board and uh, make it a trio. Wow. And so how did, <laughs> I'm curious too, how did you, I mean, picking the name of a group or a trio, there's so many options. How did you decide upon your name? Well, Kim and I um, have known each other for about five years. We never really um, started working together until about three years ago. And we just started doing... Um, the odd little um, event, whether that it was at a church or um, an outdoor park. And um, we started thinking, well, we're picking up some more um, events here. Maybe we should find a name. And uh, so we both went home and we prayed about it for a few weeks. And uh, this name kept going through my mind. And I never said a word to Kim about it. And she didn't say a word to me about what you know, what names are going through her mind. And uh, after a couple of weeks, she just texted me and she just put, Daughters of the King. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, that is the very name that keeps coming to my mind for, for us as a group. No. And um, it, exact, I'm not kidding. That's exactly how it happened. We actually got goosebumps when, we're, when we were talking about it. And I actually get goosebumps now because... <laughs> It's only, to me, it's only God that, that can do that. And uh, so that's how we chose our, chose our name, Daughters of the King. And, um, you know, it 
daughters, it doesn't just mean one or two. And so when we added Roxy, it, it, it just all fit. So. Wow. <laughs> That's another great story. And I, I, I felt emotion, emotional when you, when you told me that because I, I, yeah, there's power there for sure. Um, and so you have a few events coming up. Let's maybe start with the one that's soonest, the one in Belleville. What can you tell us about that? Um, the event, uh, this coming Saturday, April 13, um, is for New Life Girls Home. We've actually done concerts for New Life Girls Home uh, the past two years, so this will be the third year that we will be performing um, for the concert. And New Life Girls Home is um, a program in the uh, county area, and it's been around for 30 years, so this is a big celebration this year. And uh, they work with young women. It's a Christian program that works with young women uh, ages 18 to 30 uh, who deal with mental health issues, addictions, and other life-controlling issues. And uh, so that's what we will be doing on April 13th. And then on May 3rd in Kingston at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, um, we will be putting on a, a concert fundraiser. And that is in support of the kitchen renovations uh, at Gill Hall, which is in St. Andrew's Church. And that is home to three programs uh, that work with the homeless, Special Meals, the Kingston Street Mission, and The Mass. Mm. I've been down to the mess. It's a very interesting, uh, the mess open art studio. That's right. That's right. Yeah. What a great program that is. And I've met some really neat people and a friend of mine actually goes down cause he just loves to hang out and meet new people down there. <laughs> and, uh, and so the event in Belleville, where is it being held? The one in Belleville is being held at the Maranatha church, which is on college street. And people can get, still get tickets online. Well, they can go to uh, daughtersofthekingmusic.com. We have information about um, both the concerts. But the one in Belleville is actually free. Um, however, they do request that you uh, call in and just reserve reserve your seat. So, But it is a free concert, the one in Belleville. Wow, that's awesome. I know, it is. <laughs> <laughs> They wanted, they wanted to give back to the community this year because it's their 30th year um, um, running um, the New Life Girls Home, and so they were they wanted to celebrate and give back to the community and make it um, a free concert this mm. year, so, which was really cool. Amazing. Yeah. And so a, a few final questions for me and then anything else you feel like you'd want, you'd want to share with our listeners. Um, sure. What are you... What are you ladies hoping to do and kind of, if I can use the word accomplish, um, with your music? Um, as a group, um, and I think this is individually as well, is that um, we want to bring hope uh, to people through our music and, and share the gospel and, and also share what Christ has done in our lives because um, as both Roxy and I have stated, we both um, have dealt um, with uh, depression and anxiety. And, we, you know, we all go through uh, different things in life. Life is not easy. And so we just want others to know that they're not alone and um, that Christ loves them. And that's what we want um, to share through our music. Mm, that's beautiful. Well, anything else you want to touch on before we finish for today? Well, that's good. Well, it's so nice to to connect with you, and I hope to meet you in person someday. And um, I wish you uh, wonderful luck and uh, great performances in the next few weeks. And um, oh, thank you. Yeah, thanks again for sharing your stories with me. Okay, thanks. And again, uh, if anybody wants to know any more about the concert, they can go to daughtersofthekingmusic.com. And here now is Daughters of the King. You're listening to Talk on CFRC 101.9 FM and on the web, cfrc.ca. In my heart, one that is burning with fire so bright. Come Holy Spirit and fan the flame. Blow on the embers and set me, set me. 
on CFRC 101.9 FM and CFRC.ca. If you have any questions or feedback or would like to be featured on the show, please email me at info at timothydgauthier.com. That's info at timothydgauthier.com. Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, I facilitate a free drop-in group called MindWell. It's a support group for anybody dealing with burnout, stress, anxiety. Again, that's Every Thursday from 7 to 8.30, the address 1111 Taylor Kidd Boulevard at St. Paul the Apostle. Till next week, be smart, be safe. If you like great music from the 60s and 70s and good covers, listen to Frankly Speaking, music to tickle your memory bones. On Fridays at 1 p.m. on CFRC Radio.
AMHS KFLA's vocational services connect employers with skilled workers recovering from mental health challenges. This free program offers individual assessments, job preparation training, and placement. Employers are matched with qualified, reliable workers and receive ongoing support for hires as they lead their lives in positive new directions. For more information, call 613-544-1356 or visit amhs-kfla.ca. This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.